0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Edwick, and today I'm joined via Zoom call with editor of the podcast, Helena Cornew. She is here to tell me about the episode that we have for you today. She did a really cool and interesting interview and she's going to tell us all about it. So first things first, Helena, who did you talk to?
1: Hi, yeah, so I talked to Jess Wade, who is a physicist at Imperial in London, and she is just an all-around amazing, amazing person. Like, her research is super cool. I will be perfectly honest, I didn't really understand <laughs> what she works on. I, 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 like, I I understand the, the general principles, but I, I yeah, nope, not not a physics gal, I'm afraid. <laughs> I found out about her because she started a campaign in 2018, where she decided that she was gonna make Wikipedia less biased by writing a page every day about either a woman or a person of color. Because it turns out that most of the people who edit Wikipedia, I think 80% of people are white men from North America. And so unsurprisingly, there are actually very few biographies of women. There are only about 20% of biographies of women on Wikipedia, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's improved in the past few years. Um, and so Jess decided that she was going to write a biography a day, and she she actually told me that she would she decided she was going to write one, and then sometimes she'd get carried away and write three in a day. And just, you know. <laughs> she's written more than a thousand pages. I can't remember the exact number, but she's she's just written an incredible number of biographies. Yeah. And she is really vocal and a huge advocate for you know getting people on Wikipedia and using Wikipedia and improving it, and to the point where it can really reflect the people who use it. So as you can tell, massive, massive fan. So I was very nervous <laughs> when I was talking to her. Um, lovely, and she agreed to talk to us. So I, I interviewed her about about her involvement with Wikipedia.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That sounds really, really cool. Um, I think before we dive into the episodes, we also have a Freshers Week event to promote. It's happening, it will be tomorrow <laughs> when this <Yes>. is broadcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so the reason that we're broadcasting this particular episode today is because Tomorrow, I'm hosting an edit a Wikipedia edit thon along with Edinburgh University's Wikipedian in Residence, Ewan McAndrew. So please join our event. Ewan's going to teach us how to edit Wikipedia, and then we're going to try and get a few pages expanded or created in order to make Wikipedia less biased and a greater resource for everyone to use.
0: Nice. And it's also just really good training for the kind of skills you'll be able to use if you want to get into science communication or write for the magazine or whatever. All those kind of the skills of of citing sources and all that jazz super useful. I mean
1: they're really useful skills to have for university as well you're definitely going to need this these kinds of skills when you write essays and for for writing for the magazine as well and then you can get to know a few of us who are in the magazine if you're interested in joining it's going to be great it's going to be a a very fun event I'm super excited.
0: Sweet all right well that is awesome let's dive into the episode.
2: So my name is Jess, I am a physicist who works in the chemistry department at Imperial College London and my research looks for new materials and nanostructures to create better electronic devices. In particular I'm interested in carbon-based semiconductors, they're called organic semiconductors, and I can put them into really cool arrangements and structures and generate circularly polarized light and the reason that this is interesting for electronic devices is if we had LED pixels, like the, the pixels in the displays on mobile phones and televisions, if those LEDs emitted circuit polarized light, then the displays would be much, much more efficient and would have much longer battery life because of some complicated filters that you have in your screen. So we're basically looking for new light emitting materials that can make mobile phone and televisions more efficient. Organic electronics, so carbon-based semiconductors, are Mm -hmm. already really, really big. It's the O in OLED, if you've ever seen an OLED television or if you've got an iPhone 11 that has OLED pixels. Mm -hmm. So they're already using the organic materials to emit the light. The next step is using the structures and the kind of mixtures that we work on to make that light twisted. To, To do that at the moment is kind of an interesting change in the way that they manufacture displays because we do very solution process work whereas at the moment things are deposited by vacuum which means that we destroy the structure that we create. So actually there is quite a lot of effort on looking at how we can integrate this into manufactured processes but also what I've kind of found throughout my postdoc is that the circular polarized light emission is really cool but it's by far the no it's it's nowhere near the coolest thing that these materials can do. So, so they, they behave really weirdly in magnetic fields, which is kind of fascinating. And they also filter spin-polarized electrons. So if you inject a current of electrons into these materials, then up electrons will move in one direction and down electrons will move in the other. So the, kind of, the thing that started me on the project was looking at light emission, but actually now I'm realizing that they're applicable in so many different ways.
1: Oh, that's incredible. And I was just wondering what got you interested in, in physics in general, but also in this project in particular?
2: So I, I think, I, I mean, like most physicists, particularly women physicists, I got interested in physics because I had such great teachers at school. So I had, I had a really fantastic chemistry teacher and a really fantastic physics teacher. And both of them really taught me how much more there was beyond the curriculum and how applied science, applied physics and applied chemistry could ultimately make the world a better place, how we could use it to create solar panels, how we could use physics, particularly to design new networks that let us better image and then understand medical diseases, how we could use chemistry to create new molecules and materials for things that we haven't been able to do before. And I think that I was very, very much taught that at school. My parents are both medical doctors. And, you know, they've always taught me that that you should do something for other people, right? They've always worked for the NHS. So mm-hmm. I always knew that I wanted to do something that was kind of useful, not just, you know, go and work in an investment bank, which a lot of physicists do once they graduate. <laughs> and, and also that, that kind of being curious, asking questions, finishing your day at work and going home still thinking, kind of, I love that. And you know, because you also work in a lab, the kind of joy of going to sleep thinking about things that you could do the next day and if, if there wasn't a pandemic going on you can just go <laughs> and do them and I think I think that's really really exciting so I, I think probably my my teachers certainly encouraged me my parents really just let me do whatever I wanted to do I went to art school for a year before I started doing physics which I think was really important to give me that space from high school and the kind of intense maths, chemistry, physics, and art, and then and then getting to, getting to really appreciate the application of science in something beyond just scientific research. You know, I, I lived in Italy for a little bit during that year and was kind of studying the Renaissance and all of these fascinating masters of of art, of fine art, were very, very scientific. And I think that gave me a really broader appreciation of what science was.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that we've we've kind of divided art and science, um, and I'm, I find the all the projects which try and use science to, in art or use art to communicate science, I find those so fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean, they are just amazing. I just feel like at the moment, there's, there's an amazing course at Central St. Martins, the art school, which is called Art and Science. So it's like an MA in Art and Science. And at the moment, it's the very art side, you know, it's mainly artists who incorporate some magnets or some like fluorescent materials (laughs) but there's so much more we could do if we got scientists to better appreciate how art how powerful art can be for telling what we do and also for coming to kind of new conclusions about how we work you know there must be so much overlap if you're designing new solar panels with what they do in in glass and that kind of industry and how you make things beautiful I, I have a feeling that it's coming because I think our generation of scientists really, really won't put up without that collaboration there, without that interdisciplinary stuff there. But at the moment, it feels like art's quite appreciative of science, but science aren't appreciative of art enough yet. You know, in England, England, you could take four subjects for your final exams, and maybe one extra one if you had time or if the school let you do it. And so I was really lucky to be able to do the subjects I, you know, timetable-wise it works, and they did maths, further maths, chemistry, physics, and art, because art I could kind of do on the side without (laughs) having to be in the timetable. But now they've changed it so you can really only do three subjects. So you choose three subjects when you're 15, 16, and they're going to define you. And if you've decided that you want to do medicine, or if you've decided that you want to do engineering, or if you've decided that you want to do physics, then you've already kind of set the choices that you've made. You don't have that flexibility to have an extra option where you can do a modern foreign language, where you can do something like history, where you could do art, all of which is so important for training people to become good scientists. So we've really, really lost that, you know, that power to have the freedom and the flexibility, but also to get inspired early in your life, which I think is just so important. I really wish. And, and, I know we'll start talking about it soon because every time I talk about anything, I end up talking about Wikipedia. But I (laughs) really wish that I'd had a better training in history. You know, I stopped doing history when I was 14, 15. And and now I think, you know, so much of what I do and so much of what I love about editing Wikipedia has given me this really big appreciation of history. And I think when we live in such an incredibly bizarre time, right, we have this incredibly unknown worlds of the pandemic, of the Black Lives Matter, of this movement to decolonize all of the structures that we live in. And I think all of that is kind of, I think I'd be able to articulate it a lot more and understand it a lot more if I had a better training in history. And I really think science students need that. We need that historical grounding in what we do.
1: That reminds me of, uh, I heard a talk by Angela Saini um, about uh, her new book and she was saying that everything that we know, it's so dependent on the context in which it was discovered. And that's something that I think we don't think about enough as scientists, about the, yeah, the context of society in which we do science influences the science that we do, because we're so used to thinking about science as being unbiased. Obviously, I'm
2: the biggest Angela Saini (laughs) fan. It's completely true, you know, we really need this ethics, this history of science, this we need a better appreciation of the context in which researchers did the work they did. You know, when we when we sit down in a physics lecture theatre or a maths lecture theatre, we just get presented with information as if it's completely true and completely concrete and as if that's the final answer. And we never learn about that process of getting there. Mm -hmm. And I just really wish for science and society's sake we had space to let us do that.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah, so you talked about how your teachers were really influential on you and actually that's something that you've mentioned as well about how important it is to have, um, you know, physics teachers who are women or who can influence young people. And I was wondering whether you noticed sort of gender bias when you were at school or is this something that you noticed later?
2: You know, I went to an all-girls school. So noticing gender bias in, in one sense is quite difficult because if girls didn't do physics, then no one did physics, right? <laughs> you definitely noticed it in the numbers of students who take different subjects, you know, when we got to, to, to A level and you make these choices. So when we got to 15, 16 kind of highest level, I guess, in Scotland, and we started to really to, to kind of concentrate on a few particular sub, uh, subjects. You can tell I've been in the lab too long, because when I say sub, I instantly say substrates rather than subjects. So when (laughs) we got the chance to choose our own subjects, um, the number of people in history classrooms went to about, you know, 20, 25. The number of people in my art class was, I think, probably 22. And the number of people in further maths was 4 and the number of people in physics was six. And then when we ultimately did our exams at the end, I think there were five physicists and four of us further mathematicians. So you don't have the... You know, you don't feel like you're being stereotyped all the time, but because of the way that society has made young women think about what they can and can't do, and where they will and won't fit in, and what they can and can't achieve, you still have this really big underrepresentation of of women and people of colour in, in in physics and and further maths.
1: So the audio here was a little funky. But essentially, I asked Jess what she thought the main issues were that needed to be addressed in order to correct
2: the gender imbalance in physics and in science more generally. I think a huge one, and I've kind of alluded to it already, is that the shortage that we have in the United Kingdom as a whole for skill specialist teachers. So we really don't have enough teachers who have a really great grounding in physics, in further maths and in computer science. And when you have a teacher who isn't entirely confident, it's really difficult to see yourself taking that subject and succeeding. So I think something that we really need to work on as a society is to recruit more teachers, to pay all teachers better, right? They're probably the most important part of our society. Well, at the moment, you could argue that it's medics, but when we're not in a pandemic, teachers are beyond the most important part of society and yet we pay them so, so very little. So I think the one really, really key thing is upskilling our teachers and supporting our science teaching community better. I think another part I kind of mentioned already, but is this, this idea of stereotypes and stereotypes in society and particularly how we bring girls and people of colour up to tell them they're not going to be as successful as white boys. And you see this in lots of kind of Sneaky and subtle ways, but in the toys that we give kids, in the books that kids read, in the sweets that we give kids, in all of these different things, we very much tell girls that they're inferior to boys, and we very, very much exclude people of color from almost all of these things. So, when you look, there was a really comprehensive survey of all of the kind of top, I think it was maybe the top 1,000 best selling kids' books from the New York Times and Time Magazine a couple of years ago and it found that less than 1% of the main characters were black or minority ethnic. So you have books that you're giving to kids where 99% of the main characters are white. I think it was one in five of the main characters were girls or women. So you're overwhelmingly telling children that the successful, the main characters, the leading people in society will be white boys or men. And I think that has this impact that you can't even tell until you're a teenager and you're trying to make these really difficult life choices so we have this huge challenge in high schools because we're making people make decisions too early and making people make quite restrictive decisions too early you know if you don't do physics at the age of 16 in the UK you can never become an engineer and that's that's pretty terrifying to have to tell a 60 to make a 16 year old make that decision we have teachers who don't feel really confident in what they're teaching. And then we also don't give very good career advice. So we don't go to, to young people. We don't go to teachers as scientists and tell them about what we really do. And I think actually having that option, having the chance to have a conversation with someone who is a researcher, who is a astronaut, who is an engineer, that would really, really change your mind about whether you see yourself fitting into a subject. So I definitely think, you know, we need much less stereotyping, we need less sexist stereotyping, and we need less racist stereotyping. We need to work on training our teachers better so that they feel supported and confident in what they're teaching because their enthusiasm and inspiration is so essential to making a young person decide whether to or not to do a subject. And we also really need to include people's parents in the conversation. Because I think we underestimate how important a parent's opinion about a particular subject is. And often, you know, my parents, my parents who were super bright and, and super incredible in many ways, are convinced they didn't learn physics at school. My mum is convinced that she didn't ever hear about gravity until about three years ago, she thinks it was invented. So I really think you, you, the opinions of your parents, that kind of idea can make children and young people afraid of a subject. So, so if you're sitting at home and you're struggling with your maths homework and your mum says some offhand remark about how she's always hated maths or your dad says physics is really boring or maybe your older siblings had a bad experience with it or your carers or grandparents, that can really influence how you feel about the subject. So we need our outreach and education programmes to include families and teachers particularly.
1: I completely agree and it, and interestingly I think it also applies it doesn't only apply to science because I remember when we were choosing like a second language in school and um, they did a survey of kids before they talked to their parents and a lot of people wanted to choose German I think it was like 20 people and then after they'd gone home and they'd had to ask their parents for their parents to agree everyone came back and wanted to do Spanish because I think there's this idea that it's the it's most spoken language, but this yeah, so, it's how much serious. is influenced by their parents.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And actually, the stereotypes that parents hold you know, there was some research by the Campaign for Science and the Campaign on Science and Engineering case um, a couple of years ago now that looked at mothers' decisions. I think it was parents, not mothers. I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. <laughs> I think it was parents' choices about what they wanted their sons and daughters to do. And, and it was, you know, long ago that this was very, very binary decisions they were making. And they said they generally wanted their sons to do high paying professions. So they were things like engineer. They were things like software developer. They were all of these different jobs that are paid quite well. And then when you looked at the jobs that they wanted their daughters to do, it was teacher. It was beautician. It was musician, maybe. And scientist was really low down and engineer was almost at the bottom. So the the opinions, the, frankly, out of date opinions that parents have can really, really impact the decisions that young people make.
1: But I think, so I think you mentioned as well, um, and I completely agree that part of it is also that it's hard to imagine the kind of things that you can do with science training. And like, for example, I think a lot of people think, okay, you do science, well, you're going to become a scientist and to do that. And then you have all the stereotypes of, like, to do that, you have to be a genius and all of this. Yeah. But we don't often talk about the, 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 the other jobs that, that, where science training could be very useful.
2: I completely agree. We have this really weird notion that everyone will just appreciate that when you study physics at A-level, you can go off and become a journalist or work on policy or become a computer scientist mm-hmm. or a data scientist or work in medical imaging or work in a hospital or work in research, when really... When you study physics A-level, you have no idea that all of these different things are possible. You know, when I look at things like The Guardian, the lead science writer at The Guardian is, is an incredible woman called Hannah Devlin. And literally every single day at the moment, when, when The Guardian news app pops up on my phone to tell me some more horrible, depressing stories, it's <laughs> Hannah Devlin who's written it. If you look at the science team at the BBC, it's a guy called Palab Ghosh. When you look at all of the training of all of these different people, Hannah, Palab, Libby Jackson at the UK Space Agency, all of them did undergraduate or postgraduate physics degrees, actually all at Imperial. So we have this incredible history, this rich history of physicists going off to do other important things. You know, MRI, all of medical imaging is is physics led, all of the way that... The images from medical scans are presented to and interpreted by doctors is is done by people with physics training. I had no idea about that when I was at high school. You know, I just thought physics is like friction and like a brick and a (laughs) brick, like you push you push some log and some effect is gonna happen. You never ever talk about the how useful it is. And 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 I wish we did that more.
1: I completely agree. I mean, I think one of the reasons I ended up in biology was because I couldn't see how you could apply physics and and what it might lead to so I definitely
2: yeah I I completely think so I think that the other the other overwhelming thing that I guess is is it must be harder to do now but I think when we were at school and you learned physics or or even chemistry or biology you felt like it had all been done so long ago you could never contribute in a meaningful way so with physics because you learn about you know outer space and the movement of the planets and how, you know, some old white guys 150 years ago looked and saw some comets. <laughs> you ignore all of the stuff like like CERN, like the detection of gravitational waves, like these huge, international, incredibly diverse projects. And actually learning about them is, you know, 10 out of 10 inspiring. But also it gives you this appreciation that people from all different kinds of backgrounds and like all different countries, actually, the internationality of science is something I don't think we learn at school. and And that was so important for me. So we went, I had, I had, as I mentioned, incredible physics teacher who was just really on it. She took us to CERN in year 12. So we were 16, 17. And she took us on a field trip, a physics field trip to CERN to go and to go and look around. And I I mean, I remember very little other than we got to Geneva, and it was probably by about 10 factors, the most expensive place I've ever been in my life. And that was the main predominant thing I remember about that trip. But, but I also just remember thinking like, you know, physics is contemporary. Physics is happening now. And physics is happening by people who look very different to the people in my textbooks. And I think that that, you know, I've never really thought about that before, but that must have been important for me.
1: And I think that transitions quite nicely into your, um, your work for Wikipedia, if you don't mind talking about that.
2: No, I don't mind at all. So I have, um, I think, so I, whilst I'm a massive Angela Saini fan now for her incredible work calling out racism and academic racists and and actually teaching people all around the world about the origins of racism, I was previously a massive fan of Angela Saini for her incredible work looking at gender bias and particularly looking at why for so long women have considered inferior in society, intellectually inferior, we weren't allowed to do anything, we weren't allowed to vote, we weren't allowed to own property, we weren't allowed to attend universities and I think that all of these different things I've kind of been loosely aware of but as I mentioned before I had terrible training in history and I, well I shouldn't say that, my history teachers were great, teenage (laughs) Jess was not a big fan of history and And then I'd been working for a while. So since I started my PhD, I'd started doing more and more kind of campaigns and activities to try and increase the representation of girls in physics. The number of girls who choose physics for their final years of high school is very low. It's one in five compared to one in five of all physics students. And so i had been working throughout my, my PhD to try and change that. And then kind of getting a bit frustrated because you can see incremental changes, you know, I can mentor a couple of people, I can help people with their personal statements, I can do mock interviews for people going to university, I can go and talk in all of these different schools. But really nothing, nothing felt like it was changing fast enough, you know, we didn't have this connection to teachers, we didn't have this appreciation that it was stereotypes, particularly that were holding girls and people of colour back from making these choices. And then I read inferior. And honestly, like my mind was just blown, because there were so many assumptions I'd had about men and women. You know, even me, kind of cool, progressive physics communicator, had assumed loads of things about women were kind of true, right? You assume things like multitasking is something that women can do. You assume things like there are particular characteristics that women have that men don't have. And I think in some parts of your head, you think that's because of biology. And certainly, historically, men, white men, looked around them and saw this very unequal world and and thought that it was women's biology that was making them so underrepresented in in leadership and various other positions. And inferior really just kind of taught me that that was completely not true, that it was actually the way that society had been structured and these weird power dynamics and how much these power dynamics permeated through every single aspect of our lives. And, And I read that book and then I learned about Wikipedia, this you know, I mean, I knew about Wikipedia before, right? Because you know, I cheated in a pub quiz before, but I, <laughs> I had never appreciated how it was put together. You know, I never really thought about the fact that it was entirely contributed by two by volunteers. I genuinely never thought about how important it was. So it's you know not only used by people cheating in pub quizzes or on exams, but also by journalists who are trying to get a really quick overview of a subject before they go on news to discuss it it's used by media teams when they're booking people to come on shows because they go there to see who's an expert in a particular topic it's used in classrooms because so many teachers rely on it just before they teach something it's used particularly in the developing world where they don't have as quick access to textbooks as we do in 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 the kind of Western world. And they, they reach out and they get on Wikipedia and they often get offline access. So the amount of ways that Wikipedia is obviously important is huge. But the kind of sneaky and subtle way, which I hadn't appreciated until quite recently, was how it also informs so much of our unconscious choices. So if you do a Google image search and you look for famous physicists or famous engineers, You'll get a wall of old men and that will be because they all have Wikipedia pages. Wikipedia pages are indexed almost instantly by Google. So if I publish a Wikipedia page now, it will float to the top of a Google search in a couple of hours. Wikipedia pages with images on go onto Google images. If you ask a question to your Siri or your Amazon Alexa, the answers will come from Wikipedia. So it's kind of massively important in so many different aspects of our lives. But it's also got this huge problem with bias. So between 80 and 90% of editors of Wikipedia are men, the majority of them are in North America and, and, and probably white. It's hard to get that kind of information. And, and the content they create reflects that very, very homogeneous demographic of people who are editing. It's about, I think I checked the other day, it's about 18.5% of the biographies on English-speaking Wikipedia uh, are about women. So that means one in five, four times out of five, if you read a page about a human on Wikipedia, it's about a man. And it's difficult to get numbers on ethnicity because you may not always put that into a Wikipedia page. Um, but you can pull the numbers on, on gender quite easily. And, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know so many more incredible women than I do incredible men. It seems quite unfair <laughs> for me that only one in five of the biographies are about women. And we have to remember that this is like many, many encyclopedias, you know, a lot of history is written by, well, A, the victor, right? You, you, the winners write history, but also it's written generally by white men, about white men for other men to read. And, (laughs) And Wikipedia is the first time ever we have had a crowdsourced amount of knowledge that is so crucial to our lives that we can create the story, we can change the narrative, so, I learned about women's underrepresentation. I read Angela's book that taught me about all of these kind of frankly incredible women throughout history who had been ignored. And, and I learned about how to edit Wikipedia. And I just thought, you know, I like things that are a bit of a challenge. So, I thought oh, maybe I, I learned in late 2017. And then over the Christmas break, I was just like, well, I'm just going to start writing pages about women scientists. And then I thought maybe I'll just try and do one a week. And then I don't know what came over me, but I was like, I'll just do, I actually, I like something that's kind of got order to it. So I'll do one page a day. And so I started that in 2018. And as of right now, I think I've written just over 1050 pages, which is so great, but it's kind of taken me. It's yeah. It's just, it's completely addictive and it's completely taken me on this journey from physics to, to neuroscience to psychology to English literature, you know, I've learned so much about writing about these phenomenal women and men. I, really, I write about women and people of colour and, and women of colour particularly. But I think that I am so lucky to have had this opportunity to learn so much. And I really hope that the pages that I write are useful to other people who read them. I think part of it is this rush that, you know, you're writing for a site that is viewed so many times. One day in March, all of the Wikipedia platforms got viewed 650 million times in one day. So, you know, you're writing for a website that's used, but also it's like the thrill of learning and honestly uncovering facts. Like, you know, I wrote, I wrote a page this week about the first African-American person to get a doctorate in public health in the States, a, a professor called Paul Connolly. Corneli, maybe if you pronounce. The other thing is because you're writing it all down. You never hear how you pronounce it. (laughs) But, But his life is just completely fascinating. You know, was born in Guadeloupe, grew up in America, studied medicine, became a civil rights activist, all of this stuff. And you realize this, you have this kind of rush as you're finding out facts. You know, if you can find where someone went to high school, I like jump off my chair. I'm like, whoa, you feel like this is so cool that I've managed to capture this little nugget. And it's kind of joyous, you know, it's this complete thrill that, that keeps you going.
1: It sort of feels like when like like doing science, when you kind of find a new fact or find a new piece of the puzzle.
2: It's it's completely that. It's that that joy of finding new facts and answering things. And and you know, I feel that just as much when I'm in the lab. I feel that when I capture some new data, I know that you, you aren't the biggest fan of data analysis, but I kind of <laughs> love data analysis. And, and I feel that, that complete joy of learning, of the unknown and figuring something out. It's, it's a thrill.
1: So would you say that your, have your goals changed at
2: all since you started your challenge? Or I don't what, know, because my, every time I've spoken to my mum, she's told me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so she was like, will you stop when you get to 500? Will you stop when you get to 1000? Kind of like when I first read Inferior. I bought so many copies of it to take around the world to give out to people because I thought it was such an important book. So every time I knew I was going to meet an incredible, impressive woman, whether it was a fantastic engineer called Pautachi Valerino, who is, the, was, is probably one of the only indigenous Americans who works for NASA, particularly on an engineering project. Then I also met this incredible woman called Francesca, who was the, is the first, Woman to be head of department at the University of Nigeria for physics, and so when I knew, when I had these dates in my schedule, when I was going to these talks or conferences, I'd buy a bundle of copies of Inferior to be able to take to these women to give them a mm-hmm. copy. And my mum was like, "Stop buying Inferior, <laughs> stop buying." It. And now with Wikipedia, she's like, "Please speak to me, please." I'm editing Wikipedia everything. single like, night because I love learning so much. I feel so lucky to keep going with what I'm doing. And, and I think I don't, I don't want to stop, you know, my focus has changed a little bit because I was focusing at the beginning on women academics in the UK. So women professors in the UK or British women professors, because they're very underrepresented, particularly for physics on Wikipedia. And then you kind of get frustrated because the UK is such an inherently racist country. We have so few professors who aren't white. So Mm -hmm. I was very conscious of that. And then you have to go to the States and, and to other countries. America's had much, much more progressive campaigns for a longer time to better represent people of colour in positions of leadership in academia. And so what started as kind of a physics women project has really expanded. Recently, I've just been writing about incredible black academics and also people working on coronavirus. So I just learned so many different things. I can't imagine stopping. Yeah, every single day I'm like, maybe I'll run out at some stage. Maybe I won't have people to write about anymore because they won't, you know, you know, you'll get to a limit where all of the impressive women that you can actually write about properly, you know, that you can actually give justice to their work, you reach it. But I've never reached that. Has there ever been any moments where you've been particularly frustrated with this challenge? No, you know, there hasn't been... There have been times when I just, you know, the, the challenge of proving someone's notable is really difficult. To prove someone's important enough for a Wikipedia page, you have to use this kind of language that... It's kind of showing off, but you're not allowed to use adjectives, really. So you have to remain entirely neutral, but prove someone's important enough to be on Wikipedia and that's sometimes difficult. And then you have this challenge that women and people of colour aren't only underrepresented in, in general scientific life, but also even when they are there, even when they're experts, even when they're professors, even when they've won big awards they're rarely spoken about in, in the public. They're rarely spoken about on news shows or by newspapers or in magazines. They're rarely given the honor and the credits that they deserve. And that makes it harder to write Wikipedia pages about them because Wikipedia is an encyclopedia and all of the references on there should be secondary sources. So they should be places that have written about someone, but they're not written by the person. So it can't be an interview or a blog or social media. And it shouldn't really be the academic profile because sometimes you worry that universities won't be entirely neutral about their stuff. So actually finding citations and sources for women, for women of color, for for people from marginalized backgrounds is difficult even when they are important. So you have this constant challenge that it's, it's much harder to write about people from underrepresented groups for Wikipedia than it would be to write about white men
1: if enough people know about this, do you think we can ever get to a point where Wikipedia is seen as a sort of trusted source of information about people? And
2: Yeah, so I think actually, you know, I think it is seen as a trusted source. I think, you know, sometimes teachers say, don't use Wikipedia when you're referencing, you know, when they say it to kids a lot, don't use Wikipedia when you're doing your homework. But really what they mean is cite the actual source. So go to the Wikipedia reference and cite that. And that's what Wikipedia is for, right? It's to present you with a kind of easy-to-read synopsis of something and then guide you to the places where there's more detail. It's kind of like a literature review, but an open-access, free-to-use literature review, which is so crucial. But I think that we'll get to a stage where, I'm hoping we get to a stage where we have more diversity amongst the people who contribute to Wikipedia. You know, particularly people from the Global South, particularly women. We really, really need to change that. Because if it's an encyclopedia and a source of knowledge that is used by everyone, relied on by everything, even big tech companies, then we really need to make sure that the stories that we're telling on there are coming from a diverse range of people, that the, the diversity of people using it is reflected in the diversity of the people who are creating that knowledge. That's what I hope we get to.
1: Uh, just to finish off, I, was, I wanted to ask you what are some other ways that we can try and improve diversity in STEM? And I know you wanted to talk about uh, nominating people for awards.
2: Yeah, so I think something really big that is important when you're applying for new jobs and it's important when you want to feel validated as a scientist is being recognised for the science you do. So maybe that's a Wikipedia page, but more often than not, that's a fellowship or an award or an honour. And I think that we have a huge challenge as a society to better recognize and celebrate people from marginalized backgrounds. And actually everyone listening and everyone in general could sit down and spend half an hour, an hour writing a prize nomination for a scientist from an underrepresented group. So that could be your incredible black professor. That could be your great woman lab partner. It could be something like that. And to find an award, to find something that will be useful for their academic career and to sit down and nominate. And, and it doesn't take long. And actually, the joy that it brings people when they win awards, and they can put it on their CV and it's big and important and flashy, is so crucial. So I think that improving the diversity of awards nominations is, is something that we should all work on as an academic community. Because at the moment, the people who win awards really, really doesn't reflect the diversity of the cohort of people who are doing the research. It's, you know, I, I spent a couple of weekends ago, I spent Sunday counting all of the different scientific awards, particularly for physics, and of about 3,000 possible awards that people could win, two in history have gone to people who are Black, and maybe about 8% have gone to women. So we do have this really, really big task ahead of us to better champion people from marginalized groups in in the awards and honors that we give out. So that's something I think is really important. But other than that, I think that people can commit their time long term, become a mentor, become some kind of advocate or guidance for someone from an underrepresented group. And don't just go and do one talk at a school over lunchtime and think that's going to change the world, because actually, it's a much longer commitment that's really important and particularly these ones where you see the same people again and again, where you have that constant feedback. I think that would be incredible. Become a mentor, give proper career advice, connect to people for a long time, and really think about who we honour on Wikipedia or in awards and honours.
1: If anybody would like to sort of find out more about this, obviously we've talked about Angel Saini, but are there other books that you've read or resources that you would think would be particularly useful? I think
2: everyone should read inferior and Superior. I think that everyone should start with superior because it's incredibly pertinent right now. Um, I think if you go over, head over to the 500 Women Scientists website because there are these great um, sessions they do. I think every Tuesday they have different activities that you can do as a scientist. They've had some great suggestions for, for, for Black Lives Matter, for where you can donate and for what kind of things that we should be doing particularly as, as, as white people, as a scientific community that's predominantly white what what can what should that be doing to change and and that's really great but we also put together a list on there maybe about a year ago now but you'll find it of all of the different awards that people can be nominated for or nominate themselves for and i think we can really educate ourselves there you know when the awards come up and what the deadlines are and what the requirements are so so if people do that that would be fantastic
0: (laughs) And that's our show. Huge thanks to Jess Wade for coming on the podcast and for such an interesting conversation. If you're interested in getting involved with the Wikipedia editing movement, Helena is running the USI Wikipedia Editathon tomorrow. That's September 17th. Head to our Facebook page at Edinburgh University Science Media and click on the Events tab for more info. Be sure to check out 500 Women Scientists and the books Superior and Inferior by Angela Saini. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you'd like to get in touch with a question, suggestion, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, you can reach us on our Facebook page or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast@gmail.com at gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usi.org.uk. This episode was edited by my partner in crime and wonderful interviewer, Helena Cornu. The awesome podcast cover art was designed by Usi chief editor, Apple Chu. The intro music is an edited version of Funkarama and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. I've been your host, Tom Edwick. Until next time, keep it science.